turn in your Bibles or your, use your mobile devices and go to 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're going through this entire book, and the theme of the book is found in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, where God tells Samuel, I have sought out a man after my own heart. And of course, he's talking about David. But what we're learning is that by God's grace and by his Spirit, we too can become people after God's own heart. And we're looking at different elements of what it means to become a people after God's own heart every single week through the text. This week, we learned that one of the crucial elements that God uses to form us into people after his own heart is surrender. Now, to sort of give us a picture of what surrender is, I'm going to go way back in the archives. It's been a while since I showed a clip. I'm going to go back to 1983. There's an actor named Michael Keaton that many of us know. He's been in Batman movies. He's been in Spider-Man movies. Uh, he's been in some Academy Award winning movies. But in 1983, he was in a movie called Mr. Mom. He had lost his job. And his wife got a great opportunity. So they switched what had been their traditional roles, and he stayed at home with the children, and she went to the office. Well, very soon into the movie, he realizes just what a piece of cake it was to go to the office. And it's just filled with all kinds of, of humorous moments as he learns how to be Mr. Mom. In the scene that we're going to watch... Uh, Michael Keaton is talking to his six-year-old son, Kenny. And it's time for Kenny to give up his security blanket. It's called his whoopee. And as you listen to the conversation between Kenny and his dad, Michael Keaton, I want you to be thinking about two things. First of all, what whoobies are you looking to in your life? apart from Christ, to deliver you from pain or fear or insecurity. And the second thing I want you to think about is, what does it mean to surrender? And what's it take? Surrender takes a lot of guts. Why? Well, because we don't always immediately see what we're going to receive in light of what we're giving up. That takes faith. That takes guts. And that's why just like little Kenny, when God sometimes asks us to give him our false saviors and our human coping mechanisms, our whoobies, we say no. And he says, please, and we say no. But then he works that trust in us. And maybe hesitantly, but eventually, we surrender afresh to God. In the text, Israel is facing a crisis. There's a cruel tyrant 
of the Ammonites. His name is Nashan. By the way, keep in mind, throughout this morning, Nashan is actually the word for snake. Nashan is threatening the people of Jabesh. And Israel's hanging on so tight to the life they have that they're actually ready to surrender to the enemy that they can see, even if it costs them losing their right eyes, literally, rather than surrendering to God because they're not really sure what God's going to do. We face those same choices, don't we? There are things we know that we probably need to surrender to God, and we certainly know we need to surrender more of ourselves to the Lord, but we're unsure. We're filled with fear. And through this text, God gently coaxes us to a place of surrender so that we will grow in having a heart after his own heart. Let's all stand out of reverence for the Word of God. I'm going to read the whole chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then Nahash, again remember, Nahash means snake. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabash Gilead. And all the men of Jabash said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. 
Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. Folks, this is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he longs for us to live lives of surrender before him so that we might find life indeed. Let's pray. God, Holy Spirit, come and be with us. Come and teach us. Come and anoint this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So four times in this brief chapter, the Holy Spirit inspires the narrator to use one word that sets the stage for the entire chapter. That one word is surrender. Oh, it's translated differently in our English versions, but it means surrender. In verse 3, the people say to the snake, uh, Nashan, we will give ourselves up to you. Nahash, I'm sorry. We will give ourselves up to you. We will surrender to you. Verse 7, twice in verse 7, Come out after Saul and Samuel. That means surrender yourselves, offer yourselves. And then it says later in the verse, they came out as one man. They surrendered themselves. They offered themselves as one man. And then in verse 10, tomorrow, and this is actually a tongue-in-cheek irony here, we will give ourselves up. The word means surrender, but it can also mean we will come out as one person against you. Through the text, we are called to surrender. And through the text, God gives us three encouragements about his heart that enable us to surrender willingly and freely. Let's dig in. First of all, surrender to your king's protective heart. In verses 1 through 3, we see that Israel is ready to make a treaty with Nahash, the snake, they're even willing to have their eyes put out just so they can engage in self-preservation. They may have one eye, they may be slaves, but at least they're going to be alive. By the way, this is a clear reminder of, of a principle that's important in the spiritual life. Any time we compromise at all with evil, it will demand a pound of flesh. You want to make a treaty? With the snake, it's going to cost you. Anytime we seek to compromise with the enemy, we may not lose our right eye, but it'll cost us. But the people of Jabesh, they didn't think they had any alternative. Finally, in a desperate attempt to put them off, they say in verse 3, well, give us seven days. If we can't find anybody to save us in seven days, then we'll surrender to you. They're so ready to surrender to evil, to the enemy, instead of surrendering afresh to God. Or at least surrendering afresh to the king that God has given them. In 1 Samuel 8, we learn that the whole reason Israel wanted a king 
is because they wanted a man who would lead them into battle, a man who would protect them from the enemy. In 1 Samuel 8, verse 20, this is what we read. Give us a king that he might go out before us and fight our battles. God said, okay, I'll give you a king. He gave them a king, Saul, and the enemy came, Nahash, and they still didn't turn to the king. They panicked. Before we're too hard on Israel, God's given us a king too. And our enemy, the snake, comes after us as well. And yet, time after time, when I know all I need to do is surrender afresh to my king, I try to formulate my own plans of self-preservation. I try to negotiate terms of surrender with the snake. And it never works. But God in his kindness isn't going to forget us. Just like he doesn't forget Israel. So look at verse 6. Verse 6 structurally is the very center of the chapter. In other words, it's, it's the critical piece that holds everything together. And I know there's 15 verses and this is verse 6. But structurally, if you saw the way the passage is laid out, verse 6 is the center of the chapter. And in verse 6, what happens? The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul. Now this was predicted in the previous chapter. 1 Samuel 10 verse 6, God says, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. Uses the same word here in 11.6. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Now we're told in 1 Samuel 10 verse 6 and 9 that when the Spirit rushes upon Saul, he will be changed into another man. When the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul, he will be given a different heart. Now what happens is when the Spirit rushes upon Saul, Saul as king becomes God's representative to God's people. And Saul's heart begins to reflect and reveal our king's heart the true king of Israel, the king of kings and lord of lords, the heart of Jesus himself. And look how Christ's heart is revealed and reflected in Saul when the Spirit rushes upon him. Look at verse 6. His anger was greatly kindled. When we're attacked by the snake, when we're attacked with temptation, brokenness, when we're attacked in any way as God's people, God's heart is kindled with anger. It is Zechariah 2.8. Write it down. You wanna, you'll want to memorize this verse. In Zechariah 2.8, we read these words. Whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. That, that's the most tender part of the eye. Do you ever notice how instinctively we protect our eyes? If the wind's blowing and there's debris in the air, how, how we'll squint to make sure that nothing's going to get in there, or we'll cover our eyes. 
we instinctively protect our eyes. God's heart, God's nature is to protect his people. You in Christ are the apple of God's eye. And God protecting you is one of the deepest desires of his heart. When the snake attacks us, Jesus loves to spring into action. What happened when Saul, the New Testament Saul, was persecuting the church before his conversion? When Jesus showed up and said, okay, Saul, enough, what did he say? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No, that's not what he said. He was persecuting the church, but what did Jesus say? Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes any attack on us as an attack on himself. And his anger is kindled. But he wants us to run to him. He wants us to lay down all of our protective, manipulative, self preservation coping mechanisms. He wants us to surrender and to trust him to fight our battles. And when we don't, it breaks his heart. What battles are you facing today? How is the snake coming after you? Are you turning to your whoobies? Or are you turning to Jesus? I think one of the most beautiful pictures of the heart of Jesus along these lines is when he approaches Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather you and protect you as a hen gathers her chicks. But you just were not willing. We're so comfortable with our own coping mechanisms. It's so hard to give them up. Just like Israel, we'd almost rather compromise with the snake than the need to surrender to Jesus afresh. And God says, there's nothing to fear. My anger is kindled against your enemies when you're attacked. Run to Jesus' protective heart. Then secondly, surrender you to your king's unifying heart. Saul does something really wild when the Spirit of God rushes upon him and his anger is kindled. Look at verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen and he cut them in pieces. And he said, come out after Saul and Samuel. Again, there's that word surrender. That word means surrender. Surrender yourselves, offer yourselves, and trust yourselves to Saul and Samuel. So Saul was issuing a threat. He said, if you don't come out, your oxen are going to end up like, like these oxen. Now, you know what our tendency is to do? Our tendency is to put ourselves under performance. And say, if I don't move out, God's going to get me. No, that's not what Saul is saying. 
Saul is saying that the snake doesn't stop with where he starts. The snake started with Jabesh. And you may think, well, that's Jabesh. I'm fine. Saul's saying, no, you're not. And that's not the kind of enemy you're dealing with. If you don't come out to help your brothers and sisters in Christ, the enemy's just going to come after you eventually anyway. You need to band together with your brothers and sisters. And you need to come out as one man. And you need to fight against evil together. Otherwise, your oxen are going to end up just like these oxen. That's why in verse 8, it says that Paul or Saul musters the people. He's rallying them to come together to look out for each other. If you've come to this church long at all, you've heard me say this a hundred times, if not more. The Christian life is only peripherally individualistic. It is primarily corporate. One of my pet peeves of American evangelicalism is American individualism. It is not you and Jesus. Get rid of that idea. It is you and others and Jesus. We are a fellowship. We are a body and we will be more emboldened and encouraged to live lives of surrender when we remember that we are not alone. When we remember that we are part of a fellowship. And that as a fellowship, we don't isolate, we congregate. And as we spend time together, God builds unity and we become each other's brothers and keepers. The entire Bible is focused on first and second person plurals. You'll find some I's and some me's and some my's, but primarily you're going to come to ours and to y'all's. Okay? Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Jesus taught us to pray in a way that we would be constantly reminded, it's not about me. It's about us. And for us to face the snake, we need to be people who are unified, who are looking out for each other who have each other's backs. Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer, John 17. He pours out his heart to God. And three times in one short prayer, he says, Father, may they be one, even as you and I are one. We are so much less likely to compromise with the snake when we know we're not alone we're so much less likely to give in to the enemy when we're surrounded by the body of Christ. The Christian life is primarily corporate in nature. And then look what happens in verse 7. The dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out. They surrendered as one person. 
Now again, our tendency as performance-oriented believers is to think the terror, they were horrified, they were, they were tremendously afraid of what God was going to do if they didn't act. That's not what the text is saying. The dread of the Lord fell on the people. In other words, the same spirit of zeal for the church that fell upon Saul fell upon the entire church. There was a spirit of unity flowing from the heart of Jesus for his people. And they came out as one man. And oh, may God pour out that dread of the Lord upon us in our day. Not being afraid of God. The dread of the Lord, the fear of the Lord that is a zeal for the health, the peace, and the purity of the church of Jesus Christ. It's not every man for himself. It's all for one and one for all. That is the cry of Jesus for his people. I'm going to read you a quote from a a Tim Keller book. Uh, Tim Keller, a wonderful uh, PCA pastor, part of our denomination. Uh, Pray for him. He's wrestling with uh, pancreatic cancer. Uh, He wrote a book called The Reason for God. It's basically a contemporary attempt, a quite successful attempt, at sort of uh, giving us a new mere Christianity by by C.S. Lewis. And uh, in his um, section on the Trinity, where he talks about the unity of the body of Christ, he writes these words. Again, the Trinity, uh, Christians have a foundational, philosophical, theological foundation for relationships and intimacy. It's the Trinity, the triune God. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and Son. It's all these relationships, and that's why we're relational beings, because we have a Trinitarian God. Listen to this. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. This creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom are choosing to move around the other two. Each of the divine persons centers upon the other two. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. And this creates a dynamic pulsating dance of joy and love. And when we begin to discern Jesus moving toward us and encircling each of us with an infinite self-giving love, then we're invited to surrender our lives to a whole new foundation that enables us to enter the dance of centering our lives around others. You want to see the snake defeated? Enter into deeper fellowship with one another. And as you focus your life on orbiting around the lives of others, you will find that they're doing the same thing with you. And you will be emboldened against evil. And you will be strengthened against compromise. And the snake will be defeated. 
Surrender to your king's unifying heart. Surrender to your king's protective heart. And then lastly, surrender to your king's gracious heart. All through the beginning of this passage, there's nothing but spiritual failure. Verse 1, make a treaty with us. They're ready to compromise with the enemy right from the start. Filled with unbelief. Verse 3, we don't think there's anybody to save us, but give us seven days to check. Orphan mentality. There is no king who will protect us. There is no father who loves us. There's nobody who cares about us. We're orphans. We're street children. We can only take care of ourselves. Verse 4, the people weep aloud when they hear what's happening to Jabesh. Defeat and misery is already a foregone conclusion. There's, there's no hope in any of their lives. Spiritual failure after spiritual failure after spiritual failure. Nonetheless, in spite of Israel's sin and unbelief, God's still gracious. Again, verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. Human sin does not slow down God's grace. Not even Saul, the king, believed. Saul, the king, was out in the fields with his oxen. He's supposed to be ruling and reigning and protecting, and he's farming. Yet nothing stops God's grace, especially not human sin. Verse 9, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Not because they earned it, not because they deserved it, not because they were worthy of it, but because God's heart is to be gracious. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ was sent when we were unworthy. Christ was sent when we were undeserving. Christ was sent when we were ungodly. And then look at verses 12 and 13. This is, this is really interesting. There were a group of people that didn't want Saul to be king. Because they thought, who's this guy? Why should he be king? Who made him king? It's like, who put you, who put you in charge? No, the fact is, God did. But they, they refused to submit to Saul. So after the battle, when the snake is defeated, some of the people that were behind Saul said, let's bring those knuckleheads out that wouldn't submit to you as king, and let's kill them. How's that for Christians taking care of each other? But Saul speaks up in verse 13 and says, not one man will be put to death today because the Lord has worked salvation. When the Spirit of God fell upon Saul and he was changed into another man, when his heart was changed, his heart began to reflect the heart of the true king, King Jesus. See, Jesus is simply the new, better, and greater king of Israel. And everything beautiful and good and true that Saul reflects in this passage is just a minute reflection of the true heart of our true king. See, we're just like the Old Testament church in the New Testament church. We give in to unbelief, don't we? We compromise with the enemy, don't we? We act like orphans, don't we? And yet, 
our sin will not slow down God's grace. So Jesus comes to us in our failure and says, do not fear. No one will be put to death today. Why? Because our true king was put to death in our place. And the Lord has worked salvation for us. That's the good news. That's worth surrendering to. I spoke last week about the liturgical calendar. We're not a very liturgical church here. We don't have the liturgical vestments, and we don't have the colors, and we don't necessarily celebrate the different seasons. But remember, we were talking about the miraculous of the mundane last week, and after talking about the liturgical calendar, and Advent, and Epiphany, and Lent, and Easter, and Pentecost, and, and then remember what the longest season of the church year is? ordinary time, right? Because that's what the Christian life is. It's, it's ordinary time. God works through the ordinary. Well, guess what? Today is the last Sunday of ordinary time. Today is the last Sunday of the church year. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, the first Sunday of the church liturgical year when everything begins afresh. But today's the last Sunday of ordinary time. It's the last Sunday of the church year. And guess what today is called? Christ the King Sunday. The last Sunday of the church year is a time for the church to reflect upon the wonder of Jesus the King ruling and defending and protecting us, unifying us, pouring out his grace upon us, and longing for the day when King Jesus comes and crushes the snake's head under our feet. Life begins with surrender. You have a choice. You're going to cling to your own human coping mechanisms. You're going to clutch your whoopee? Or are you going to surrender afresh to Jesus? It'll take guts. But you'll receive more than you ever dreamed. Let's pray. Father, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know Jesus, we pray that he would or she would surrender to the king the King of kings. God, thank you that when your spirit rushes upon people that we can reflect and reveal your heart, even a man like Saul. Father, we pray that for those of us who are struggling to surrender, maybe we're like little Kenny and we're just saying no, 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 no. God, put the trust in our hearts to release things to you and God defeat the snake in all of his forms in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. Hear the benediction, the promise of God's love and favor upon our lives in Christ. Receive it. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Abba Father 
and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.